Well, it is good to be back home with you all and to be able to stand here once again and open up the Word of God to you. And um, it's always a treasure to hear from the Lord what He has to say to us. So often, it feels like we're at the mercy of a fallen world, a world really that totters and jolts on the brink of eternity. Things often feel like they're out of control, and really, one wrong turn, and we could end up in sort of a post-apocalyptic world barely surviving on the verge of death. It sometimes feels that way. And it seems to be anyone's guess as to what's really going on, and only really a few select people claim to hold the power to impact the future. Yet the Bible explicitly tells us that we are on a divine timetable. God is the one who orders the events of history, and He alone is the one with the power to effect true change. Isaiah 40, verses 22 and 23, it is the Lord, He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Or even Daniel 2.21, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. And it is He who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And so we see that the world is actually marching to the beat of God's drum. And all of history is God's history. He owns it all. Furthermore, Colossians 1.16 declares that all things have been created by Him, Christ, and for Him, Christ, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things hold together. And so, these tumultuous days in which we live have been foreordained by God to accomplish His sovereign will with the result that... At the time that has been fulfilled, Christ will, the Bible says, reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. But we are not left in the dark, beloved. God has revealed many things to us, and he tells us in the word to keep our eyes open, to watch and to be vigilant and to wait on the Lord. There are signs, the Bible tells us. There are beacons, so to speak, and there is hope for all who trust in Him. But beloved, we must be discerning. We must be discerning. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about discerning the signs of the times. And so turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. The events of Matthew 16 occur just after Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee into Israel from Decapolis. He's been in Decapolis previously, and before too long, he and the disciples are going to cross back over into Gentile territory because we know he ends up at Caesarea Philippi in verse 13. So they're going back and forth across this small sea. But for now, we understand that they are in Israel just long enough to have a very tense exchange with the religious leaders of Israel. And so we pick up at that point In Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. 
But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the sign, signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand? And how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand? And how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now verse 1 introduces us to a very strange occurrence, a strange occurrence. And you look at your text, you might be thinking, what, what strange occurrence is this? And that is of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming together to see Christ. Why is this so strange? Well, because the Pharisees and Sadducees were political and religious opponents. And on the one hand, the Pharisees, they were the religious fundamentalists. And they demanded that all Israel follow not just the the whole law of Moses, 613 commandments, but also the man-made tradition of the elders. And that's what Jesus rebukes them for earlier in the previous chapter. They were legalists, to be short. But the Sadducees, on the other hand, they did not regard the traditions at all, and they even denied much of the Old Testament revelation. They claimed to believe the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, but they spiritualized virtually every text until it lost its true meaning. So they were all over the place. The Sadducees, they were more political, but they were materialistic, they were pragmatic. They were the religious liberals of their day. Both groups generally detested one another and fought each other vigorously. And yet, as the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that's where they came together. The Pharisees and Sadducees, They had found a common enemy which brought them together as allies temporarily. Who was that enemy? Jesus of Nazareth. And so this demonic duo, if you will, comes to Jesus not for the purpose of learning from him. They're not interested in what he has to say. They come to him for the sole purpose of testing him. And we know this is not a test that they're trying to get him to pass. Matthew records, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, they would have no doubt heard already of the earth-shattering miracles a few months before when he had fed the 5,000, if not more, maybe upwards of twenty or 25,000, but 5,000 men in Israel. They might have even heard about the recent feeding of the 4,000 in the Gentile territories. But they're coming to him because they want him to perform a sign in front of them. We want you to do something specifically For us. Now, here's what they're hoping to do. If he does a sign, either they can prove that he can't do it, 
And if he says, oh, I'm not going to do anything, they're going to say, oh, see, he can't do anything at all. You're just making all this up. Or if he can do a sign, they want to try to explain it away for people. They did this previously when they told him in front of the crowds that he did all these miraculous signs by the power of Satan. So they want to uh, repudiate everything he's doing and discredit him publicly in the eyes of the people and stop his spiritual assault on their monopoly. How does he respond? Look at verses 2 and 3. This is interesting. Peter replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. And then he says this, Do you, not, you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, verses 2 and 3 here are really common sentiments in Jesus' day, and frankly, we have an equivalent saying ourselves. And maybe you've heard this before. I'm sure that you have. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Anybody ever heard that before? That's a fairly common nautical saying. Now, I was wondering, I was scratching my head, is that actually true? Because I look out at the sky and I wonder, is that a true saying? Well, I just had to investigate this this week. So, I went to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I found an article, and there is some scientific merit to this, believe it or not. The issue has to do with high and low pressure systems. Now, as some of you may know, there's every beam of light is made up of a spectrum of colors. There's lots of colors, every color, if you will, in every beam of light. Now, Essentially, the darker and bluer waves are shorter waves, and the lighter, redder waves are are longer. And so as the atmospheric pressure changes, you see certain waves of light. And so here's how this works. The sun rises in the east. Okay, we see the sun first in the east. And if you see a red sky in the morning, you know that those wave beam, those beams of light, those wavelengths with that pressure system is coming your way because it's moving from east to west. It means the high-pressure system is there, and so a storm is likely on the horizon. However, if you see a red sky at the end of the day, that means it's moving away from you. And so therefore, you don't have to worry about a storm hitting you. And so again, the saying is legitimate. In the time of Jesus, they didn't understand atmospheric pressure and things like that, but they did know enough about the weather to make observation and know red sky in the morning, got to take warning, Red sky at night, we'll have the light, right? So they understood that at least. In the morning, they said that the the weather was fair, they could be fine. If it's red and threatening, that meant a storm. And so that was very simple for them. Now, the religious leaders, they understand this sign, the signs of nature and weather, and essentially he praises them for that. You guys are good at predicting the weather. Good for you, very good. However, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to things like the revelation of Scripture, and the plan of salvation, and the identity and arrival of the Messiah, and the coming judgment, you are completely incapable of discerning the signs of the times. And if they couldn't do that, then why, why in the world would he give them yet another sign for them to misunderstand? It's a waste of his time. And again, these are supposedly the godliest and most spiritual people in all of Israel, and yet they couldn't discern enough to know that the Lord God was standing right in front of them. They completely missed it. And Luke 12, 56 actually records its parallel. He says, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Pay attention. Why don't you see this? 
At this point, Mark 8.12 records that he sighed deeply in his spirit. And then he says, verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. We read about this way back in Matthew 12.38. He says this to some of the Pharisees and scribes back then. They asked to see a sign. He said the exact same thing to them. Well, now the Pharisees have brought the Sadducees. He says the exact same thing to them. But why does he respond this way? Why does he say to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign? Because after all, what's wrong with asking Jesus to show a sign that verifies his identity as Messiah? I mean, don't you want to prove? I mean, if, if you want to prove to the religious leaders of Israel that you are the Messiah, why not open up the heavens and the earth and stop the seas and do all these things you did for other people? Why wouldn't you do it for them and tell them what's going on? The problem is that he'd already done it several times to no avail. In fact, turn to John chapter 10, if you would, just a few pages over in your Gospels. John chapter 10. On the heels of his teaching of the Good Shepherd, many Jews were gathering around Jesus to confront him about his identity. And we read in this passage here, a relatively longer passage, but I want to look at this. John 10, starting in verse 22. From what I can tell, this text takes place sometime around the same time as we're reading about in Matthew 16, possibly a few months or a few weeks after, possibly before, but the time frame is similar. So that's where I'm bringing us here for this reason. At the time of the Feast of Dedication that took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has, not the, has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So again, verse 24, they ask him, tell us plainly, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And he tells them, not only have I already told you, I've already told you. Way back in John 8, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. He invokes the name of God. They try to kill him then. He says, I've already told you. 
and yet I'm still doing signs and wonders and healings and miracles. He says in verse 25, I do the works that my Father is doing. I do the works in my Father's name. They testify about me. And when Jesus performs all these signs and wields the power of heaven, it proves, it proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is from God, and yet many don't believe. Why? Verse 26, because you are not my sheep. You're not my sheep. Their hearts were hardened. They rejected the Lord, and therefore they don't belong to him. In other words, if the works testify about his identity and they don't believe the works, then they're hardened and they don't belong to him. They're not his. So then it pleads or begs the question, why would he keep on showing them signs and wonders? It's pearls to swine at that point. It's a waste of his time. So they can just keep on rejecting him? That's why he says in Matthew 16, 4, that no more signs will be given. I'm done. I'm done with you. No more signs. The only sign that you're going to see is the sign of Jonah. And what is that, by the way? We talked about this a few weeks or a few months ago. This is the sign. He's going to die. He's going to be buried in the belly of the earth and resurrect on the third day. That will be the sign that Jesus is going to die, be buried, and rise again from the grave And many will see him, and if they don't believe that, then there is no hope for them at all. And they really are, at that point, an evil and adulterous generation. Go back to Matthew now. So Jesus has dispensed with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he and the disciples, we read, they make their way over back to the other side of the sea. Now, no doubt they're headed to Gentile territory again. We know this again because in verse 13, they're in Caesarea Philippi, so they're already there. They're, verse 5, they're in Gentile territory. But on their way to get there, the disciples realize that they have forgotten to take any bread. Now Mark records that they're down to their last loaf. Look at verse 6. Jesus says to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now as soon as he says this, they all begin to panic. Look at verse 7. They began to discuss among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. Oh no, He's on to us. See, they thought that He was rebuking them for not bringing any bread with them. They forgot to bring their lunch. But they missed the entire point of Jesus' comment altogether. He responds, look at verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, He heard them talking about bread, Aware of this, he said, you men of little faith. Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? This is clearly not what he's referring to. And he rebukes them, notice this, for their lack of faith. He doesn't rebuke them for their lack of understanding. It's for their lack of faith. And he rehearses the evidence of all of this. The problem is they're still not trusting him. They're trusting in the will of the flesh. They're not trusting in God. And he rehearses this. Look at verses 9 and 10. He goes backwards. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? You guys carried 12 baskets of leftovers from this massive meal. You carried these back with you. Do you not remember this? Or... 
the seven loaves of the 4,000. How many large baskets did you pick up then? Do you not remember seven huge human-sized baskets full of extra food? So he's rebuking them for their lack of faith. In the last six months, he had demonstrated to them that he had the power, the divine power, to feed thousands upon thousands upon thousands out of thin air. Do you really think that Jesus is not going to feed them lunch when they get hungry? I mean, it's almost absurdity, isn't it? That they're going to be worried about not bringing their lunch with them? What if we do if we get to the other side and we can't find food? And blah, blah, blah? My goodness. He noticed, look at the rebuke again. You men of little faith. Now why so severe? I mean, after all, they just forgot their lunch. Why is he saying you men of little faith? Well, here's the thing. In their fear over the lack of bread, they were evidencing the same kind of faithlessness that the Pharisees and Sadducees are are evidencing. Well, how so? The difference is this. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they demanded a sign from him in order to believe, and yet the disciples are ignoring the previous signs that they already had seen because they were struggling to believe. It's two sides of the same sin. They're not saying, if you show us a sign, we'll believe. They're saying, you've already shown us more than enough signs, and yet I still don't trust you. You see that? It's the same problem. He rebukes the Pharisees and Sadducees and says, you, brothers, you, you have a little faith. If anybody should understand this, it's you. Don't you trust me that I'll take care of you? Stop worrying about bread. This is not the issue. But there's even something greater taking place here. There's something else going on. While they're so busy fretting about lunch, Jesus is trying to warn them of a real and present threat from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look at verse 11. He says this, How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Brothers, this is greater than bread, he's saying. This has nothing to do with bread. There's something insidious going on. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What's he talking about here? As we saw several weeks ago when we studied the parables, leaven is all that is is just a small lump of dough that you use to form, uh, ferment a new piece. You could take an old piece of the dough and knead it into a new piece of dough and make a, a, a leavened piece of bread and you can keep on going. You can move that, that starter piece along until you have more and more bread. So that's what that is. But really, the way that this is understood in the Bible is this small little piece of leaven is used as a symbol to illustrate the, the pervasive nature of sin. That you take a little tiny sin and you knead it into your life and next thing you know it ferments the entire thing. And it's always, most, most usually used in a negative connotation. Jesus is using it in the parables actually in a positive way or just kind of a general way. But normally in Scripture, leaven and yeast are symbolically negative. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is teaching on the danger of sin in the church. He uses this metaphor in verse 6. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, watch out. This is why church discipline is so important. When you have an insidious thing that comes uh, into the entire assembly. I'm not talking about 
headhunting for individual things that are private that you can deal with interpersonally, but when there's a sin that pervades the entire church and rears its ugly head, if it's not dealt with, eventually it will sweep through the entire church and all will be affected by it. That's what Paul's talking about in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So one little sin left unchecked, and it will eventually contaminate the entire church. These are the destructive results of sin and wickedness. And so Jesus is warning the disciples about the destructive influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not on the problem of forgetting to pack a lunch. Look at verse 12. Then they understood. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I was curious about what this means, too. What exactly is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that he's warning about? And believe it or not, several answers have been offered in the course of biblical history here, or scholastic history. Many have noted that the Pharisees and Sadducees actually had very different teachings, so they would not have agreed on much. So their joint teaching seems kind of odd to identify because they're polar opposites. But what is their collective teaching? What is the one thing that they both come together and agree upon and then pervade to everybody else? It's this. Whether you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee, both agree together that Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus is not the Christ. Now, of course, they would have known this. Obviously, they don't believe that you're the Christ. But here's where this is a problem. Now they're joining forces. And beloved, this is not nothing. See, some would inclined to believe the teaching of the Pharisees, pushing the law and the traditions. If you were more legalistic in your bent as a Jew, you would have aligned with the Pharisees and you would have derided and dismissed the Sadducees. Well, they don't have it right. They don't know what they're talking about. But if you were more liberally minded and you identify with the Sadducees, you would disparage the, the Pharisees and say, well, these guys are they're legalists and fundamentalists and we have the, a more progressive view of the Scriptures in mind. So there'd be one against each other. But now, here's what's happening is, what do you do when both groups, both groups condemn Jesus? All of a sudden, partisan politics are gone. All, now this is what the people would have been saying, all of our Jewish leaders reject Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Wait a second. Now there's power of persuasion in that. Now it's not an, a fight between two groups. Now all of Israel, certainly the scribes believed this, the Essenes believed this, all religious leaders in Israel were unified for the most part. Some Pharisees and some Sadducees did come to believe, but by and large the entire religious establishment did not accept Jesus. Well, what happens when you start to feel weak in your faith? What happens when you start looking left and right? You're a Jew who's been growing up in Israel your entire life and learning from these very people, and now all of them reject the one who's leading you? That's very persuasive. But Jesus says in Luke 12.1, He says the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Well, how so? In this way, that they claim to be the guardians of divine truth. We have the truth. We know the truth and teach the truth. And yet... They attack the one whom God sends to them, the Savior, the Messiah. They're hypocrites. They don't know anything. 
Now, if anybody would have discerned the coming of Messiah, it should have been the religious elite in Israel. But instead, they rejected Him. And you have to know that at some point, the disciples are thinking, what if we're wrong about this? You know that at least one of them was thinking that, right? Judas Iscariot eventually did. He sold out to the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. But that's pressure. When the whole world around you starts to tell you you're crazy because you love Jesus, that's pressure. Don't you feel that? I feel that all the time. The Pharisees, they couldn't discern because their hearts were hardened in rebellion. And in that moment, the disciples couldn't discern. They couldn't discern what Jesus was talking about because they were preoccupied with earthly concerns and not heavenly ones. He's warning them about these teachers and they're fighting over bread. Do you know what? We run the same risk. We run the exact same risk. See, here's the thing. At the first arrival of Jesus, the signs of the times were pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to come and save people from their sins and then go and die on the cross and rise again. Now for us, in 2022, looking back on the text, that's already happened. You either believe that and accept it or you don't. It's very simple. But what about for us today? Those signs of the times have already come and gone. What are the signs now? They are the signs of His second coming. His second coming. And oh, how often we sit in in the boat and we're worried about futile and temporal things. Eternity is coming, and yet we're worried about things that don't matter. How many Christians allow themselves to be overtaken by politics at the expense of the Great Commission? How many believers settle for the accepted morality that's popularized by those around them and yet don't strive to be holy as Christ is holy and as He commands us to be? How many Christians worry themselves sick at the news headlines and forget that God is sovereign? Even the devil is God's devil, as they say. He controls all things. You think that we're being led around by the nose, that we're being taken for a ride? It feels like that sometimes. But God is in control. Does not God set up kings and leaders and governors and presidents and take them down? It is to our shame that we do not discern the signs of the times. The Bible teaches that there will be famine, that there will be tribulations and rumors of wars and false Christs. There will be those who come in the name of the Lord and declare themselves to be the Messiah, and they're not. You know how we know? Because false Christs come from the ground and from the earth. They come from here. Our Christ comes from heaven. The next time we see Him, it's on the back of a white horse, not coming out of some Middle Eastern or European land. Certainly not from America. But the Bible says that things will go from bad to worse. It's going to happen. There will be times of great apostasy whereby many professing believers will fall away. And it's already happening. We see it right now. Persecution will increase. In some countries, they're experiencing persecution unlike they've never seen before. We're actually relatively insulated for the most part. Trouble will increase. And the Bible tells us that there's a time when Antichrist will come and take over the known world. However, the Bible then tells us that Christ returns to earth from heaven. 
He comes again and He judges the wicked and He judges them fiercely and He makes war with the nations. Psalm 2, He sits from the heavens and laughs at the nations who are in rebellion to Him. And then after He makes war and defeats His enemy, He sits on the throne of David and for a thousand years He reigns over the entire world and there's peace here on earth. And then after one final act of rebellion, the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, they are cast into the lake of fire forever, along with all those who hate the Lord. And then he recreates the new heavens and the new earth and reigns in peace and in victory forever. That's the future. That's what's coming. And there are signs between here and there that we have to pay attention to. And so, beloved, as we consider the Bible's teaching, and we're going to see this more, when we get to Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, that's when Jesus opens up eschatology for us. Jesus is going to teach you and teach me what happens at the end, and there's very specific things that are going to happen. And if you don't want to wait until those sermons get here, just read Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And I'll do my best to help you along when we get there. But here's the thing. Stop worrying about your lunch. Stop doubting. Stop fearing. Stop being anxious for nothing and eating the bread that perishes. Rather, eat the bread that never perishes, the Word of God. Live for God's kingdom and God's righteousness and God's glory. And don't be naive, but discern the signs of the times. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word cuts us to the very core that it exposes our wickedness and our unrighteousness and our sin and our rebellion. And it convicts us, Lord, and we come under the guilt and the shame of sin. And yet, Your your Word also reveals to us the Gospel, the beautiful, wonderful Gospel, that even though we were enemies of the cross and enemies of Your throne, You still sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to live righteously for us, to give His life on the cross and die to pay for our sins, to be buried and to rise again the third day, that You actually forgive us and remove the guilt and the shame of sin. And You give us reconciliation and peace with You. We are justified, declared righteous by our sole faith in Jesus Christ. What a marvelous gospel of truth and of peace, Lord. And so as we consider what the future holds, Lord, we don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's all going to play out today, tomorrow, Tuesday, next year, next millennium. I don't know what's going to happen, but you do. And you tell us that what the things that you do reveal to us to keep our hearts readied for the future, to live as though you come tomorrow or even today. Lord, that we would not grow slack and our diligence to be earnest as followers of Jesus Christ. Live our lives, Lord, for You today as if tomorrow isn't even going to be here. Lord, help us to have a kingdom mindset, an eternity mindset, and not to squander our time worrying about bread, but to beware of the teaching and the wickedness of this world and to hold on to the hope that we have squarely in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank You, O Lord God, that You have preserved us in Your grace. And all of us who call on Christ as Savior have this hope. 
And I pray for any person here who does not have that hope, that they would see their need for the Savior, repent of their sins, turn away from them and reject their sins, and put their life and hope and trust in Christ alone. We thank you for this good news. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.